Hi, welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Welcome back to Medicus. My name is Nate, and I'm joined by my co-host Rasa for today's episode about free clinics. We went to the biggest free clinic in the country to talk with Vicky and Ava, who are both full-time employees there, working to coordinate the efforts of hundreds of volunteers. The clinic is called Community Health, and it's located in the West Town neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. We recorded the episode on site, and you might be able to hear a difference in this episode compared to the quiet medical school basement where we normally record these podcasts. There's a few, shall we say, uh, artifacts in the audio, sirens, jackhammers, etc. So sorry in advance for that. But regardless, this episode has some great information if you're curious about the inner workings of a free clinic. Vicky and Ava were great guests, and they answer a lot of our questions for us, like what services are available at the clinic, what do patients have to do to qualify, how can the clinic afford to provide care completely for free, and maybe most importantly, how can a physician get involved if they want to volunteer. So with that, I'll cut to the interview. Can you guys introduce yourselves? I'm Vicki. I'm the patient services manager with Community Health. And I'm Ava. I'm the volunteer services manager at Community Health. Perfect. Can you tell us just a little bit more about the clinic, the history of it, when it got started, that kind of thing? Sure. So our founder, Dr. Serafino Gorella, in 1993, they saw all of these patients coming into the ER for basic things like UTI or things that they should have been able to go to a primary care provider for. And he decided to go out and canvass the neighborhood to find out why. Why would you go to the emergency room for a urinary tract infection instead of going to your primary care provider? And what they did see was that so many people had no insurance. So with that, he kind of envisioned a service delivery that drew upon the goodwill and compassion of a volunteer workforce of medical professionals to address the critical need in Chicago. And uh, long story short, community health was created. Okay. So you're kind of like a mix between some volunteers and people who work here full time. Yes. Can you tell us like how that works? Sure. So as far as our staff, we have 31 full-time employed staff. We also have some part-time staff as well as contract staff. But in terms of the providing care we have a large volunteer pool, and um, Ava would be able to give more information on that. Yeah, so volunteers vastly outnumber our paid staff. Um, like Vicki said, between full and part-time, we have roughly 40 paid staff. We have a volunteer staff of over 1,000 people, and that's actual bodies who are in the clinic over the course of a year being a part of the care team. So it's not like a newsletter subscriber list or all the different ways you can kind of amplify those numbers. We have 1,000 people who are a part of the team. Plus, a lot of those are providers, so some might be independent providers. We have, I would say it's maybe between 50 and 75 independent providers who come through of their own volition and goodwill to provide care for our patients. Then we also work with a lot of training programs, including Loyola. So we have a lot of resident physicians through St. Joe's, through Northwestern, and through Rush who provide a lot of the continuity care for our patients. We have med student clinics like, again, Loyola, um, and pretty much every major med student group that we can pull in around the city who are part of our primary care and specialty clinics. And then pretty much every other area of the clinic in one way or another is staffed by volunteers. Could you talk a little bit about what kind of services the clinic offers? 
Sure. So we offer primary care services. All of our services are for adults only. Let me just say that. Um, and we offer primary care services. We also have a large number of specialty services in-house as well. We have our own dental clinic in-house. We provide ophthalmology, optometry, gynecology, and a long list of other in-house specialties as well. In addition to our clinical type of services, we also have a large health education services program. Patients can come here and do yoga, Zumba, kickboxing. We also have a huge dietitian program. People can see registered dietitians one-on-one. We have cooking classes and we have all kinds of other services as well. So in a nutshell, it's primary care services, specialty services, nursing support services, health education services, and um, that's pretty much it, I think. That's quite a list. I'll actually add, um, in addition to all of that, I think something that really sets community health apart is we have a full-service pharmacy and we have a full-service lab, and all of that is free for our patients. So it's not just a matter of having those encounters with your provider, of getting that education support with mental health services. A patient can come in, see their primary care provider, see a specialist, get their lab work done, pick up meds, and walk out the clinic having spent zero dollars and been all under one roof. So, one stop shop. Yeah, that's impressive. That's really impressive. Yeah, so this is like these patients' primary care home, Mm -hmm. but occasionally there's probably going to be times when they need therapy that's not offered here or when there's even like a surgery that's not available here. What do you guys do in those cases? So in the case where we can't provide the service, and when you say home, exactly that's what we're going for. Mm -hmm. Community health is the patient's medical home, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of how we're putting it out there for everyone so that they understand that we are a care team for everyone. You're not just seeing a doctor. You're seeing the nurse. You are seeing the social worker, the lab associates, the pharmacy students or pharmacy um, providers that are doing one-on-one diabetes education classes and things of that nature. Um, But when we do come across those patients where we cannot provide care for them in-house, we have a large number of referral partners. We refer to partnering hospitals, um, Northwestern, Rush, Cook County, Health and Hospital Systems as well. So a lot of them will see our patients um, under the charity care free of charge. And then there would be some that there may be a sliding fee or an adjusted cost to them for our patients, like Northwestern Dental. So we do have a large number of partners that will provide care for our patients if we are not able to. So I'm sure when you refer out patients, it's necessary to share all of their information with the other providers. Do you use anything like an electronic medical record? Yes, we use Athena, which is our electronic medical record that we provide for charting. But in terms of sharing information, depending on the partner that we're sending them to, a lot of it is not required. But they will share information with us, not through electronic medical records, but through just sending over a paper report, and which will then be uploaded into the electronic medical record. That's really interesting. One thing that I just kind of was thinking about as you guys were talking about this was the way that you have kind of volunteers providing the care, but also you have employees probably doing a lot of the management in the background. How does I mean how does that work? Do you guys have like volunteers who come every week or how does that how does that factor into it? Yeah, so given the high skill jobs that we have for our volunteers um, and just the large amount of work that needs to happen, we do require all volunteers to commit to at least two shifts a month every month over the course of a year. In the case of providers, one shift a month to be a little bit more understanding of the pressures of their job. 
And then we also rely really heavily on a train-the-trainer model here. So I am the one member of the volunteer services team. I now actually have a full-time VISTA through AmeriCorps, which is the first time I've had a two-person department. So our staff kind of fans out. So, you know, my um, colleague, Gloria, is our lab and clinic coordinator. So she supervises the lab volunteers more directly. That said, we also have upward mobility within the lab volunteer program where they come on as a tech and then can train to become a lab shift leader, which means they're learning our EMR, they're learning the Quest portal, they're supervising other lab volunteers, training the new ones who come in, and that's the case across the board. Um, we have certified interpreters who work as interpreters and trainers who also run our training program for our interpreter volunteers and then volunteers interpreters themselves. So um, we rely on you know people who want to grow and improve and continue to give back throughout their, their careers they advance so that we can keep this running because one person cannot run a thousand uh, person volunteer corps. So when it comes to the lab work, so you mentioned that you have the lab tech, or I guess you call them techs mm -hmm. that uh, you know draw blood, I assume. Mm -hmm. Do they do the actual analysis of the specimen, or do you send that somewhere to have it done? So that's all Quest. Um, Quest Diagnostics is one of our largest in-kind donors, a really wonderful partner for community health. And without them, I don't think we'd even have a lab or begin to consider doing that. So we are essentially a Quest lab. They do everything in-house that they can. They, you know take the samples and spin, but then someone from Quest comes every day and picks everything up and then they process for us. That's They do it free of charge? Yes. That is incredibly generous. It's an incredible contribution, yeah. It is amazing, and once they pick up the specimen, they do the analyzing, they actually send the results through our EMR, mm -hmm. which is amazing, to the ordering providers. Mm -hmm. Okay, that plus the fact that you're able to refer to these, you know, tertiary care centers mm -hmm. for patients that need surgeries and things like that. That, I mean, I think that really makes this possible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's really impressive. Absolutely. And we often tell patients, while we do refer out, we still have a lot of in-house specialties. So we are able to make sure that this is truly a one-stop shop for patients when they come in. They see a primary care provider. They see the lab services. They talk to a pharmacist about any questions for medications. And then if they have an urgent dental while they're seeing their primary care doctor, one of our dental associates will come over to do a quick screening. And mm. so it essentially is the place where you can get maybe all of your care in that visit that you need. And it definitely sounds like you guys have a lot of patient care for one patient. Mm -hmm. So about how many patients do you see every month or year, would you average? On average, I should know this off the top of my head because I pull the data monthly. I'm just drawing a blank, but I would say we have several clinics. We see patients Monday through Saturday, and we have mon morning, afternoon, and evening clinics on Monday. We have morning and afternoon clinics on Tuesday. On Wednesday, we have afternoon and evening clinics. On Thursday, we have morning and evening clinics. Friday and Saturday, we have morning clinics. So if you can just imagine how often we have clinics, the largest volume clinic would probably be on a Monday where we could see close to 200 patients on a Monday. So just to give you a little bit of glimpse into the patient yeah. load. I did hear somewhere that you guys are maybe like the biggest free clinic in the country. Mm -hmm. Is that true? We are definitely the largest free clinic in the country, a volunteer-based free clinic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess Chicago is one of the biggest cities in the country, but it's still very impressive. Yeah, so 
the kind of background behind that and the justification for it, because I think you can claim superlatives um, forever without proving it, and sure, so I'll make yeah. sure we don't do that. Yeah. Um, we were the largest in Illinois for a long time, and then when the Affordable Care Act came around, there was a lot of movement in the free clinic sector, which led to some clinics becoming charitable or hybrid, or maybe you know moving towards knowing there was going to be a greater need for Medicaid providers. And at that point, we rose up to be the largest in the country. Um, that's a distinction that's given to us by the National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics, who does a survey of all of their member clinics every year based on a whole host of metrics. Um, a couple of the most interesting, which I'll bring up, we are the largest being uh, the breadth of services provided, which we've already talked a little bit about. So all that you can get from community health, the number of patients served, which I believe we're at around 8,000, 8,500 who are active right now. And that's a number that's ebbed and flowed um, really based on healthcare policy and who's moving to what um, service providers. And then the volunteer team, which we do have that volunteer workforce of over 1,000. So based on that and, and a lot of other stuff as well, um, we are the largest in the country. Okay, so that brings up a really interesting point because... So you mentioned that the Affordable Care Act changed a lot of things. They had Medicaid expansion, which opened up care to a lot of patients. And we did expand in Illinois, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, I'm from California, by the way. So sometimes I <laughs> get confused with some of like the Illinois laws, California laws. Expand in Illinois, yes. Yeah. So a lot of patients who didn't have care before now are able to use Medicaid to go to like a federally qualified health center. But obviously, there's still need for free clinics. Could you talk about like your typical patient and why they need to see, like be at a free clinic and not necessarily use that Medicaid expansion? Now, so for our patient load, we actually have two tiers of patients. We have transition patients, which we can see up for up to 120 days. Those will be those patients that are Medicaid eligible. While we would love to continue to provide care for them, the reality is that we are restricted and we are bound by those restrictions in terms of some services that we may be able to provide for the patient. Like I said, we will utilize our partnerships to send them out for something that we cannot do in-house, but there are still barriers because some of the partners may want the patients to pay a portion, which they may not be able to do so. And for that reason, if someone comes through our doors and they are Medicaid eligible, we can only see them for four months because we would urge them to apply for Medicaid if it is something that they can take advantage of. And so that's that tier of patient. And the other tier would be those where this would be their medical home. They are not eligible for Medicaid for whatever reason, could be income, could be status, whatever the case may be, but this would be their medical home. And so with the patients who are not Medicaid eligible, we would still encourage them all to apply for our services, even if it's only for a short term. Sure. So it sounds kind of like you guys are catching the leftovers, the people who don't qualify for Medicaid, you guys are almost in a way like... Yeah, know, I think maybe a, safety net. A, mm -hmm. a kinder way to, to yeah. put it is, I think we talk a lot about being the safety net under the safety net so that we're able to make sure that those who do not have somewhere else to turn, community health remains here. Um, you know, talking about that transition with the ACA and some of the free clinics going a different route, there was this kind of conversation or question of, do free clinics still need to exist? Have we solved it? And it was very clear to us that that was not the case. And that's why Community Health decided firmly to stay a free clinic and not to move with the tide, because there were so many folks who were not going to be lifted up in any way 
by the marketplace, by the Medicaid expansion. So that's why community health is here to kind of serve that population. And as Vicki mentioned, I think something that's really cool that community health does, we're an independent organization. So we can make decisions that are informed by best practice, by our patients' needs, and by our ability to serve. We're not beholden to kind of larger bureaucracies or these different policies that we have to dig through red tape. So when we first responded to the ACA and said, okay, we need to remain a free clinic, we're going to be here for those who are uninsurable and who are dealing with a low income. Immediately we realized that we risk contributing to a coverage gap, which is the opposite of what we're here to do, where patients, and that's that transitional patient that Vicki's talking about, just because you're eligible for Medicaid doesn't mean it's happening for you anytime soon, even if you're doing everything right. So that system is beholden to larger bureaucracies and all of the kind of clogs that happen. So when patients are eligible for Medicaid, come to us, show that they are eligible, we say you need to start that process so that you know the whole community of the healthcare ecosystem is doing their part, but that we will see you for up to 120 days as long as you show that you are doing your end of the bargain so that you're not sitting there crossing your fingers that something doesn't happen while you're waiting for your Medicaid to kick in. And that was an opportunity for us to reflect on, are we doing things right? So when I talk about us being an independent organization who can make our own decisions, who can be nimble, when we first said, okay, it's about those who are uninsured, wait, no, we missed something here. We're going to put people in a position where they're crossing their fingers, nothing happens. Let's make sure that we also have this transitional patient definition so that we have patients who can be here during that kind of stop gap to make sure that there's no gap when they're waiting for things to kick in. And while a patient is here on the transition uh, period, they still have access to all of the services that any of our other patients would. Mm -hmm. We provide medications free of charge as well, and a patient gets medications on a 90-day basis. So if someone is a transition 120-day patient, they will have an opportunity to get medications twice to give them enough time and um, so that they can find care once they get established with Medicaid. And Because there's a wait time to see providers when you're starting a new clinic. So we think that giving them that 120 days was enough time for them to have a sufficient amount of medications and time to look for a new provider. So and like Ava said, we wanted to be that kind of gap fill for patients because it's necessary. And something that I was just thinking about as you guys were talking too is that some patients, like their financial situation is not necessarily like fixed. A lot of people, so I, like I mentioned earlier, actually, I was part of the AmeriCorps program. I did, like, the Volunteers in Service to America, and they make you do all sorts of trainings and <laughs> all those kind of things. And one thing that I think they stressed to us was that a lot of these poverty safety net programs are utilized by people for a short amount of time because a lot of people are very transient and they're dip below the poverty line. You know, they lose their job, they have a medical emergency, whatever it is, and that causes them to not be able to afford their daily needs but a year later, all these people, they kind of leave that poverty zone and then they're able to, they can afford like maybe a federally qualified health center or get, you know, get their Medicaid figured out and things like that. Absolutely. And speaking of income, what if today you qualify, but tomorrow you don't? So with our patients, in order to qualify, we do have patients who need to be at or below 250% of the federal poverty level guidelines. And what that looks like for an individual household size of one, their annual income cannot exceed $31,225. And for someone with a household size of four, that amount would be $64,375. So let's say that someone comes through our doors. In order to be eligible, you need to have your photo ID, proof of current living address, and proof of income. So you come through our door today and 
you happen to be a VISTA, and so your income is relatively low enough for you to be able to take advantage of our services, great. And we will see you. But if your income is higher than the Medicaid income, which they accept up to 138% of the federal poverty level. So if you're a dollar over, then you're not qualified for Medicaid. Then you would be community health medical home patient. Patients are required to renew their intake annually. So if by the time the year comes that you are now at a different position, then if you are no longer eligible for services based off of your income, we would try to transition you out into one of those FQHC clinics, um, which is always great because what happens in that gap year where your income has changed and now you need help, but a year later you no longer need help? If community help did not exist, where would you have gone? So. Yeah. I think something else, and Vicki, I might ask you to remind me about the top line Again, just talking about community health's ability to make decisions based on what our patients need. New patients must be at or below 250% of the FPL, but we will see, we will hold those patients for up to, is it 300 or 350, Vicki? 300, yes. Up to 300. So speaking to that kind of variation that can happen, just because you tip over 250, we know that doesn't mean you can go buy your own insulin, that you can go just kind of fund your own health care. So we do as much as we can based on what we can source for patients. So really that comes to at what point can we no longer guarantee you medication for free? And if we can't offer medication, then that's a huge part of what community health has to offer. And at that point, we're no longer the right medical home or transition clinic for you. But we do, even within our model, allow for a little bit of that movement so that people aren't immediately kicked out if they're hovering towards the top right there. Yes, thank you for clarifying that, Let's just dive into that a little bit more about the medication, because you mentioned that earlier, um, and I was really curious. So that is one of the major pitfalls of most free clinics, is that it's really easy to find a a physician who's willing to see a patient or a PA or an MP or whatever and give them a prescription for something or diagnose them with an illness. But one of the hardest parts is getting the therapy to these patients that need it, especially pharmacological therapy. How are you able to offer the medications for free? So it is, I describe it as a patchwork quilt going on in the pharmacy of different kinds of partnerships that allow us to stock a lot of the medication through in-kind donations. So some pharmaceutical companies, some partner organizations that give us access to bulk purchasing power or kind of granting through. So a lot of those meds are donated, not a budget line item for us, thank goodness. Some of it is. So among those donors, first of all, many of them have their own eligibility guidelines of, you know, for whom their donations are accessible. That means that we have to source twice for some things to make sure that we have, for our patients who are at or below 100%, we can stock you from this shelf, and then we need to make sure that we have another shelf for those who are maybe 100 to 250. So it's twice the work for our pharmacy team who really rallies constantly to get that done. And so then beyond all of that, though, if, if we don't have it, if we can't source it, if something changes, we've had our insulin sources kind of vary over the last couple of years, which has been challenging. The number of patients who rely on us for life-sustaining insulin does not change. Our guarantee to provide them with that insulin for free does not change the way we get it needs to. Sometimes that means finding a new partner, if possible, and if not, it means it moves to a fundraising goal in our budget and we have to work our network and work you know everything that we have to stock that. So ideally, we're getting it for free, obviously. We will stock some things on our formulary that we purchase. Um, We use patient assistant programs, so those are kind of take longer and are cumbersome to go through all the paperwork. 
And then we will kind of, this is an order of preference, you know, there are those kind of $4 prescriptions at the big box stores that when that's possible. But ideally, we don't want to risk a patient, A, having to make a second trip to go to the pharmacy. Are they going to go? Are they going to be able to go? Do they need childcare? Do they need transportation? When they get there, how much is it going to cost? Um, so as much as we can, you know, we're all about just kind of minimizing and eliminating those barriers to care by offering meds for free in-house, that makes a tremendous difference. So, but it is a multi-tiered yeah. operation. That's an issue just in even, you know, normal for-profit clinics. Absolutely. Just getting patients to actually take the medication or mm-hmm. make that strip to the to Walgreens, right? That's, um, that's like super interesting. So... I guess we talked a little bit earlier about um, Medicaid eligibility. I'm assuming you have a similar eligibility for Medicare. Once patients are over 65, if they're qualified, you probably have them talk to a social worker maybe and apply for Medicare. We actually don't do it in-house. We would provide them with the resources to go to one of the um, senior, the SHIP counselors, which would be the senior health insurance uh, specialist. We would probably find resources that are near them and otherwise if they were transitioning out a lot of times when you're approaching that age if you're someone that's going to be medicare eligible the resources are mailed to you automatically and from there you'll be able to know what to do but we don't have any services in-house per se for the transition uh, from our clinics to medicare okay something it's almost kind of going back into the other direction but so all these services they're it's free to the patients, but it's obviously very expensive for the clinic to run. Can you guys talk a little bit about that, like how the funding works, like where it comes from, and like how much it costs you to see these patients? So we're a traditional nonprofit. Just because we're a health center, I think folks might assume that you know the, the models that you're familiar with apply to us. We don't bill. There's no billing function at Community Health. It's really nice for our providers because they're not coding as they chart. It's really just pure medicine. But what that means is that there's no money coming directly back for services rendered. There's no reimbursement program. We don't work with Medicaid. We don't work with any of these kind of you know usual billing options. So we have to raise the money, plain and simple. Um, we need to go from zero to about $3 million every year to keep things as they are right now. If and when things grow, that number obviously grows as well. Our in-kind donors, some of whom I mentioned, Quest and our pharmaceutical partners, shave a lot off of what that budget would be if we were striving to, you know, pay for a stocked pharmacy and a two-chair lab, but there is still a lot that we need to raise. And so we do that like a traditional nonprofit does in many ways. You know, we have a development team of four people. Ultimately, our entire staff is part of the development team, and even more ultimately, ideally, our volunteer Corps of Over 1,000 is a part of that development team. Everyone understands that if we don't get the money, we don't do what we're doing. And then there's a lot of kind of ripple effect from that if community health were not here. So we write grants. We, you know, um, solicit individual donations. We explore different revenue streams with our hospital partners to really quantify the value of the service that community health is giving and the kind of aspect of ER diversion and the cost savings there, where if we have patients who would be frequent flyers at the emergency room dealing with a chronic condition can come and get their care free of charge at community health at a much higher quality, we're putting a dollar value on that and really pushing to get money back for that um, from those who have it. We also are actually today kicking off a month-long series called All In. So that's a big fundraising effort for us that is an event series with everything from a gala-esque celebration. I think there's a a new Illinois rep um, who's going to host a little open house here tonight. We're doing a panel breakfast Tuesday 
We are doing an educational panel hosted in partnership with Rush at Inspiration Kitchen. So we are always trying to innovate, to think of new ways to bring money in and also to work with our partners, both in the spirit of raising funds for our primary mission, which is to serve those without essential health care. And we do have a secondary mission, which is to educate future healthcare providers. It's why we're working with Loyola Med students and everyone else under the sun. So a lot of these events are also in that spirit of really coalition building, information sharing, make sure everyone's all in. That's kind of the, the spirit of the name to make sure that everyone has access to healthcare in Chicago. That's so great. As I know, I've worked for several nonprofits and the fundraising part is my least favorite part of it. It's, it's a challenge, yeah. Thank goodness there's people who enjoy it and they're, they make up our development team, so they're really good at it. But we all have to you know, be playing our role. One more thing I'll mention actually that we do for fundraising to make sure that we have access points for everyone who's a part of our team. Like everyone cannot write a fat check, but most people can participate in Messages for Meds, which is our online fundraising campaign that's buying for volunteers. We run once a year. Per the name, it is targeted at our pharmacy, which is the most expensive department of our clinic and also the most vulnerable. So I mentioned you know, some of those insulin sources changing and if that happens and we have to raise money, we have to raise money. So that is you know, social media, emailing, hey, I volunteer at this clinic, can you kick in $10 so it can continue to do this work? And we raised $35,000 through Messages for Meds last year. So that's a really great way, again, you know, we're engaging people across all career paths and, you know, um, income levels and skills and all of that. So this is a great way to catch pretty much anyone can participate in that and, and help support community health. So that kind of leads into a question I had was how can people who aren't medically trained be involved with your clinic? And would that be primarily through fundraising? Can they help with that? Everyone can fundraise for community health, for sure. Go on our website, click donate, um, and you did it. You can become, we just launched a new access program so people can become monthly donors. That makes a huge difference for us to be able to count on that sustainability, kick in $5 a month, and you know, you will not notice it. It is a coffee. So certainly fundraising, spreading the word, outreach, as far as things that are, you know, these are all things that happen before you're actually serving in the clinic, which I'll obviously get to, helping us talk through volunteer outreach, patient outreach, depending on what community you're in and where your contacts lie. You know, whether you're bringing in donors, patients, or volunteers, we need all three. And then if people want to volunteer and are not necessarily licensed clinicians, we do have a, a fair amount of opportunity for those who don't have a ton of experience. You know, it's not everything's not purely entry level, but we have volunteer opportunities across the board, interpreters, people who run triage, that's kind of our closest to entry level position where you're learning to do take vitals and manage clinic flow. The lab, you do need to have some experience with phlebotomy, but you do not need to be certified or you know working in the field. The spirit of training is in every aspect of our clinic, so we want people to grow and to develop those skills. Dental assistants, farm techs and pharmacists, so really across the board there are opportunities, and for anyone who's interested in learning more about that, go to our website, communityhealth.org, you can sign up for an info session. We host those once a month where the same room we're sitting in with microphones, we clear out these tables and about 30 people come in. I talk at them for an hour about um, the different opportunities and we take it from there. So there's opportunity for most, as long as they have the time to give, the you know spirit of service and the commitment to really do the work, we're here to empower them to do so. Yeah, that's really cool. I imagine that there's a lot of people who are interested in doing that. They probably come to your info sessions and find out about what could fit for them I know that there's a lot of pre-medical students who are very interested in volunteering at free clinics. Uh, when I used to work at a free clinic, that was like our main volunteer source. They were constantly emailing, asking for opportunities. And uh, what advice would you give to them that to help them, you know, be the best volunteer they could be? 
So for community health, we're lucky. I was actually just chatting with one of our new triage volunteers yesterday, and she was like, this is so great because I can actually do something. I was reading a volunteer application a while ago, and, and she wrote, at my last volunteer job, I mostly just filled cups. I was like, that is brutal. But I understand, and certainly for like a larger hospital, the risk and everything, you're not going to have you know folks who are coming in without skill jumping right into a clinical role. For community health, we are lucky to have positions that are more hands-on, that will give you, I think, really useful experience as you kind of explore what a healthcare career looks like for you. Triage being the main one, again, I mentioned where you're getting a lot of direct patient interaction. You are learning to take vitals. You are just getting that sense of the flow of a busy clinic. For that reason, it's very popular, so I shouldn't shout that opportunity out too much. Everyone, I know. <laughs> but um, And then as you get a little bit more skill, and even if you've proven yourself in one role, we will consider you for cross-training. Whereas, you know, had you come in from the start for that role, maybe it wouldn't have been a go. We really do try to reward those who are giving to us and to give back to them. I will do a shout out for bilingual volunteers. So the vast majority of our patients rely on either Spanish or Polish interpreters. Those are, we could not do, we couldn't even start a day without our interpreters. We can make it work with like slightly different staffing in different departments, but if we don't have the right amount of interpreters, we will reschedule patients. So Spanish speakers, Polish speakers, please come to an info session. And that really is, I think, our most incredible opportunity. Not only are you 100% responsible for making sure that patient can even have care, but as far as those who are training and seeking that experience, you are in the exam room with the provider. Given the nature of our clinic, you might see what a primary care appointment looks like, what a cardio appointment looks like, and what a rheumatology appointment looks like in one four hour. So it's that is, shadowing. yeah, it is. Exactly. You probably get people asking to shadow you no. all the time and nope. they cannot. Nope. No. <laughs> no shadowing. No. And we have so many opportunities to do the work that, you know, there's so many people here. Our training programs means, you know, the student clinics have an attending a resident and a student. Everyone needs to be playing a role or else it just starts to feel like a theater. You know, and I've always, so I did interpreting for, that was what I did as a pre-medical student, you know, as I get my volunteer experience and everything. And I used to always say that interpreting is better than shadowing because you you understand better what happens in the visit because you say everything the patient says and you say everything the, the, the physician says. So you're like in the middle of it. Like you understand every single thing that happened in that interaction because you were basically the interaction. Right. So, Are you, you speak Spanish? I do speak Spanish. So you're yeah. gonna come and interpret. Sure, if you Great. want me to. Actually, I'm looking about here, but we'll talk. We'll talk. We'll talk. <laughs> I've been doing my dedicated study um, for my board exam soon, but maybe after that. All right. Know. One thing I was thinking about uh, is nurses, like RNs. I remember so when I was at a free clinic, that was the hardest thing to do was figure out what job a nurse would do because nurses have such a great skill set, but it's sometimes not exactly applicable to an outpatient clinic. Do you guys have roles for nurses or is it a little bit harder? Yes, so we do. And it can look like a couple different things. So we do staff nurses here. So we do have a nursing department. So there is kind of an easier plug-in than if you were inventing one because you had a volunteer. We have a two staff nurses, one Spanish fluent, one Polish fluent. And so we do accept a limited kind of based on need volunteer nurses if they're bilingual. So we have two right now and we just keep an eye on wait times. And so the volunteer nursing uh, opportunity community is actually pretty amazing because across the board at community health, everyone needs to be working at the top of their credential. We need to be making the most out of the resources we have. And so nurses absolutely are you know, in that same pool and doing things that might not even be standard fare for if you're you know, nursing in a clinic 
that has a different model. So our nurses can do MTM, medication therapy management appointments. You know, your standard BP checks and med refill appointments are happening, but there can be, you know, depot shot appointments. There's a lot of opportunity for those nurses to do more and act really autonomously, which also means that's who we need. So if someone's just coming in to kind of check boxes, that's not going to work here. You need to be able to run with it. For all the other RNs who don't necessarily fit either the language ability or, you know, the skills, we do have all those other opportunities to, to jump in. Particularly in the lab, we see a lot of volunteer nurses that try to direct them towards the lab. That's a really great opportunity for them to have that direct patient interaction. Usually they're already well-trained in phlebotomy and, you know, they can for sure find a vein. Um, <laughs> and they're also likely going to be really great at training up the rest of that lab team. So that tends to be a really good fit. Yeah, totally. Uh, so I think now I just want to transition and ask a little bit about the physician volunteers, because I think that is the thing that is probably the most relevant to most of our listeners. Uh, most of us are medical students or physicians. So can you tell us a little bit how like your medical student volunteer clinics work? So we have formal partnerships with most of the major med schools in the city and surrounding area, I should say, because Downers Grove is one of them. So Midwestern, the Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine is here, as well as Loyola, UIC, UFC, Rush, and Northwestern. So those groups all hold primary care clinics here. All of them but Northwestern are volunteer-run So they're student-run clinics, the students organize, the students recruit their own attendings, and they structure the whole thing. So it's on top of all the clinical skills you're developing, also a lot of really great kind of managerial skills and organizing skills. So these med students kind of, you know, take the reins, get a lot of leadership skill, and then also are, you know, organizing their team of 20 to 30, depending on the group. So those schools do primary care. Those are weekly clinics for each of those programs. Students are, usually, are ideally here twice a month, though it varies a little bit depending on the school and what is realistic for them. And then many of those schools also tag on um, specialty clinics. So those are also purely volunteer, and that gives them the opportunity, especially kind of some of the M2s and M3s, to come back and do a gynae clinic, do an optho clinic, and bring the attendings in for that as well. The one difference is for Northwestern, that's actually, it's called ECMH, Education-Centered Medical Home, where it's in their curriculum. So they have a a paid um, full-time attending who owns that clinic and comes in. Whereas again, all of the other programs are volunteer-driven, student-run, so really an incredible effort on their part to make all of that happen. I was really impressed when I found out about how it worked here. Because I know that, so there's there's several free clinics in the city, and they a lot of them do have medical students come to volunteer. One of the problems that kind of happens, though, is that it's there's like a huge waiting list. Uh, what will kind of happen is uh, a lot of clinics will let all of the students at the school volunteer. So then everyone wants to volunteer. Like I think at our university, like 100 of the 150 students wanted to volunteer. And so they're like, okay, so we need three students a week. So this means that it's like you're signing up in October and they're like, okay, you'll be coming in April. And I remember I did that. I did that. You know, I went to some of the clinics. And I used to always think like, this is kind of silly to just show up once because you don't because that is something that happens a lot with volunteer work is that uh, you really need it to be consistent, to be helpful. Otherwise, people are just kind of like running around trying to find a job for you to do. And it's, it's almost like I used to do that a lot when I worked um, at that clinic is like they'd be like okay we have 10 volunteers here today find them something to do find them some you know patient charts to 
to shred or yeah. you know, some cups people to, to call. fill. Yeah, cups yeah. to fill, exactly. <laughs> and I really like that model of having the students come every other week so they kind of know they get into the groove they actually can see patients obviously it takes them probably like an hour to see a patient when a normal attending physician can see them in 15 minutes and have a better better care but at that's least our secondary helpful. mission there educating <laughs> yeah. future healthcare providers yes. no Makes yeah it totally. worth it. you know and that's true is that uh, something that we used to always say is that every single medical student that comes is going to be a future physician volunteer as an attending. So that's something that's super useful. It's almost like kind of scary, I think, as a physician to just say, oh, I'm going to come volunteer this free clinic. Like, you don't really know how it's going to work. You're worried about your license, about, you know, liability and things like that. And then having that experience as a medical student, I think, kind of like makes it easier and kind of gets your foot in the door. So can we talk about that, like physician volunteers? Uh, What do they have to do to come volunteer if they're interested? Sure. So there are independent physician volunteers. If they're interested, same deal, go to our website, an application. My contact info would be on there that they can reach out based on need and, you know, capacity in our clinic and their availability. We can put something together. Though everyone who's coming in as an independent will fill out an initial application, meet with me for an hour, come in. So again, it's not like this scary throw you in. We'll meet, make sure it's a good fit, have a tour. We'll then go through the credentialing process so that we can kind of vet all of their, you know, that their license is in good standing and all of, you know, the things that we need to, to legally do to practice medicine. And so then they would come and get an EMR training and they just need to commit to one four-hour clinic a month on a monthly basis for at least a year so that we are kind of working towards a consistent workforce. Like you said, it's not this like, I dropped in, I did one clinic, I spent the first half of that clinic learning how to even run a clinic, use your EMR, all of that. And then, of course, we rely on attendings for the med student clinics. As I said, the med students are charged with that entire process of recruitment and onboarding. So in that case, you know, we can certainly follow up with information about who the Loyola attending coordinator is so that any of the doctors there who want to come in and help with the primary care clinic can reach out to that student directly. And that's sure. that train the trainer, like building yeah. leaders throughout the, the pool so that it's not all one person. Sure. Do you ever have people who volunteer to see patients at their own clinic? Like say, I'll accept like referrals to my clinic or things like that because they can't come in? Or... Oh, offsite? Um, I don't think, we don't have much of a model of that right now. It's something that we've flirted with in the past. Certainly, you know, some specialties are harder for us to get on site. Derm and podiatry are both really challenging for us. Dermatologists and podiatrists, if you're listening, please come volunteer <laughs> here. But Optometrists so, as well. Optometrists, <laughs> for sure. So... You know, I think we've, we've considered things like that, but it's, it's not quite fully formed yet. It's, it's an option if we need it, but I think, again, based on our patient service model, we really want to be able to have things here for our patients so that they are getting all of these services at the clinic they know and trust. So we focus in that direction. But it's not a no. If someone wants yeah. to find out more, we're always willing to entertain options. We always need physicians, so just email and we'll have a conversation, right? Mm-hmm. It seems like. For sure. What does a physician do like if they have retired? So uh, that's a pretty common thing I know is that physicians will retire from normal practice and then they want to continue to see patients. Is that all right? Yes, as long as they maintain their license. So all of our providers need to be actively licensed in Illinois. They do need to have a DEA as well as their controlled substance. So as long as that's still there, that's absolutely an option. Something I really love about our volunteer team is you will see every single plot point along a healthcare career whether it is a 19-year-old who's considering pre-med or just got a MA certification or whatever it might be, 
to those who are in training programs at the student level, at the resident level, at the attending level, and then even those who are retired but want to keep their skills sharp. So it makes for a really incredible community here and kind of an organic classroom. So we need that. But of course, we need to you know hold fast to those same guidelines. Sure. Yeah. You want to make sure everyone keeps their license. Yeah. It's, it's medicine. Like it's, it's, medicine. it's yeah. vetted. <laughs> so maybe to wrap things up, uh, what would you say are the biggest challenges to running the clinic? Finances, of course. Um, trying to raise the funding, as Ava said, $3 million or more, depending on the need of the patient, every year. Trying to find the budget uh, to cover all of the services that we're providing is the biggest challenge. Um, although we do have an incredible development team, and they are so good at their jobs in terms of getting the money that we need to provide the services, it's always a challenge. Also, another challenge, it could be if you know, for whatever reason, patients have struggles getting here in terms of transportation availability. So for all of the listeners who would like to donate transportation services, hmm. come find us. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's really interesting. So if people are interested in helping out, they can go to communityhealth.org. Is that your website? That is yes. our website. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Um, is there any last things that you want to say before we finish? I would say right now for any potential patients or anyone that knows of a patient that is in need of care and would be eligible for our services, come see us. Right now the wait time to see a new provider is approximately two weeks. It can change depending on when you actually come, but overall it's about two weeks right now from the time of completing the application, which is really good because sometimes I go to a new doctor and the wait time is almost three months. So right now we have about a two-week wait time for any new patient. So Look us up, communityhealth.org, and we are located at 2611 West Chicago Avenue. That's right at Chicago Avenue in Rockwell, and we're waiting for you. All right. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. And to all of our listeners out there, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have questions, comments, or episode suggestions, you can submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.